Can I first say what we shouldn't do? And that is panic. So we need strange people and out there ideas. Rule breakers, they might end up being the game changers for us. How do we fix journalism? That is the big question that hovers over every journalism conference. If you've been to a few, you might acquire an allergy to the very term future of journalism. But here we are in 2016, and the revenue part of journalism at least feels still very broken. So yeah, we need to talk about it. But do not fear. We at the Walkley Foundation are sensitive to your allergy and we'll only bring you the best stuff. I'm Kate Golden at the Walkleys, and you are listening to a special edition of Walkley Talks. Jackie Park and Peter Frey both spent time in the U.S. last year looking for hope for journalism. Jackie is CEO of the Walkleys. You know us. We support journalism in Australia. While Peter heads up the University of Technology Sydney Journalism School and is training up the next generation of Walkley Award-winning journos. They kicked off Storyology, our big journalism festival recently, with some really big picture thoughts. Here's Jackie. So here's something to get us started. A University of Southern California report estimated that Americans now, and I reckon Australians too, absorb digital or traditional media for about 15 hours a day. Now, how are they managing that? Well, by doing, I guess, two or three, ten, two or three things at the same time. And the same report reckoned that people check their phones for updates about every 10 minutes. So that's good news for us, unless, of course, you have a child doing the HSC, as I do this year. And it's good news because it tells us that there is an insatiable appetite for digital content. I just spent a year in the heart of Silicon Valley as a night fellow at Stanford University, and sometimes I felt like I was more living in the TV comedy series of the same name. You know, where unicorns roam the woods where the richer you are, the smaller your car, and where every pickup line is like an elevator pitch. It's a world of startups and self-driving cars, <clears throat> of Tesla, Twitter, and Tinder, of the big tech platforms that now dominate our mobile world. Yes, those platforms, Facebook, Apple, Google, Twitter, Snapchat, They've solved one problem for us, though. They've made the mobile web better for journalism. But we've also lost a lot of control. And in that world, we need to remember one key truth, that we are the ones that have the power of telling the story. That means they need us just as we need them to deliver our work to big audiences and to help us monetize it. For them, to keep people coming back demands strong storytelling, the sort of storytelling that lies at the heart of journalism. But for sure, these platforms and the way we carry them in our pockets are changing everything. The shift to platforms and mobile is shaking us much, much more than the internet of web pages, blogs and email. And in all the chaos, we hardly know our industry anymore. Our craft has blown up. We can tell stories 140 characters at a time or in a series of GIFs. We can mash timelines onto maps, into video, into long form. 
And although there is the inevitable, um, inevitable load of old tosh out there on the web, and our attention is splintered into smithereens, we're also seeing that the public is demanding truth. It's asserting its right to know, and it's sharing everything that can be shared. The power has long shifted to the audience, and we live and die at their discretion. But staying true to journalism lets us recognise that the technology is not the raison d'etre for trying new things. We're trying new things because these platforms have completely redefined our relationships to one another, to our community, to our, to our world. And it's up to us to understand what is it that they're looking for. The digital world now calls for an entirely new set of assumptions. And that means incremental change won't cut it. Being in Techlandia gave me the opportunity to stare into the heart of the abyss, to find answers on how to fix our industry. Call it a spiritual quest, if you will. The executive summary, there is no answer. Yet, I'm here to tell you that I found something that may be even more useful a process for finding answers, a path. And here's a spoiler alert, there is hope. And here's what I think is gonna get us there. First, we have to get the journalism right. This means holding true to our fundamentals, ethics, fairness, truth-seeking. We must maintain our excellence and credibility. The walkers sit at the heart of that, and we're not going anywhere. In a post-fact world, as Peter Frey will talk about soon, in a time of Brexit and Trump, journalism is more important than ever. Context is crucial. But we have to experiment with everything, big time. We have to make things, and we have to be prepared to break them. We can start small, but we should think big. We have to find the innovations that revolutionise journalism. So platforms powered by mobile have changed all our relationships. Fab. Let's see what we can do with that. We need to know and understand our audience, really. The best innovation comes from a deep understanding of what people need, and it's big on action, trying things, getting feedback and pivoting quickly, testing them in the market and reshaping again and again until we get it right. And right means what the audience wants. There's something else we can work with. Look at Vox's card stacks, quick dot point explainers on tough issues like the TPP. What do I want? I want to know what's going on without having to read a ton of stuff. And I want to sound, start, sound smart at parties. Bingo. Or look at the Australian's brilliant 404 pages written by James Jeffrey. An error page transformed into a way to entertain and connect with the reader. Or if you haven't already checked out the Quartz app, you should. It gives you news like a messaging app in conversational bubbles. The future is not zero sum. We're all in this together and we'll do better if we work together. One masthead's game is not, gain is not another broadcaster's loss. 
Luck and timing has a lot to do with it. What works and it has a lot to do with what works, and we can look back on many failed experiments. But let's celebrate that they tried, and let's see what we can learn from it. Let's embrace diversity and encourage eccentricity. Male and pale journalism shortchanges our communities, our creativity, and our craft. We need real diversity. And innovators, founders, are often strange people. Airbnb founders got their initial funding by selling $40 boxes of cereal, Obama O's, and Breakfast of Change. And the Y Combinator co-founder, Paul Graham, from Silicon Valley says one of the top traits he looks for in an entrepreneur for his super, super sized accelerator is naughtiness. He says they tend to have a piratical gleam in their eye. So we need strange people and out there ideas. Rule breakers, they might end up being the game changers for us. And we need to think like VCs. None of this matters if we can't get the money. We're remaking the business models as well as the journalism. Whatever it is, we need to take a page from the famously ruthless VCs of Silicon Valley, asking hard questions about revenue and scale and sustainability, investing in lots and lots of ideas and culling the ones that don't work. And finally, we need people to value journalism. To take some inspiration from Donald Trump in just this one moment, let's make journalism great again. Or maybe Hillary has it right. Journalism's always been great. Pick your favourite. Either way, we need to tune into what people value about journalism and we need to turn it up. And get them to cough up some support for it on a regular basis, if possible, whether they're subscribers, members, donors, or investors. So who's gonna figure this out? You, me, all of us. Because nobody else is gonna do it for us. While the platforms need us, and mobile is a fabulous opportunity for us, it's journalists ourselves who have to take charge of our own evolution. I know many of you in this audience and I believe in your ingenuity and your perseverance. For the Walkley Foundation, who we've been partnering with Google, we've learnt uh, on our innovation grants, we plan to build this into a much structured, more structured accelerator support program and potential fund for innovation, learning on, on what we've already done. If you want to get involved, get in touch. We don't know what to expect any more than you do of the future. But we'll be there as guides, as supporters, as fellow travellers on the journey. And lucky for us, these next few days are going to make us all much smarter as we hear from the best and most creative journalists among us. It's time for us all to share our ideas. Welcome to Storyology. So... Now, to keep the big ideas going, our next speaker is Peter Frey, someone who's never been afraid to try things. Peter's the Professor of Journalism Practice at the University of Technology, Sydney now, and he's a 2016 Fellow of Digital Entrepreneurial Journalism at City University, New York. Welcome, Peter. Thank you.
Hello, everyone. Um, welcome uh, to Storyology. Great conference. Well done, the Walkleys. Um, and thank you, Jackie. Uh, if you haven't done so, uh, have a read of Jackie's piece in the current edition of the Walkley magazine. So she gave us a sort of a, a, a precy of it just then, but there's some fantastic and valuable insights inside that magazine piece. And not least of which is the idea that we, as an industry, need to develop and support a journalism incubator to test and grow out some of our the new media businesses. The future of journalism in this country rests on the creation of 10, 20, 100 new media companies rather than in the handful of a few big ones. We need to develop an ecosystem of journalistic enterprises, often deep and narrow in focus, each with a clear idea of who their audience is, what it wants, and how it can be best served, and how that enterprise will make money. The fu this future probably or largely sits in the intersection of media, technology, and business, and the road to that future will be littered with failures and heartaches, but worse things can happen. It is time we learned from such failures and openly shared insights from them. Instead, sadly, we often take perverse pleasure in seeing our peers and colleagues fall down. We need to rethink how we as individuals and an industry operate. Remember silo thinking. Silo thinking used to be a charge labeled against so-called print recidivists who failed to fully embrace the shift to digital. That was really more of a cultural war brought on by a special breed of new media executives who thought that the only way to create new things was to tear down the old. That war is over. We now have an even bigger bunch of silos to break down. The barriers between journalists and their audience, between journalists and business, between journalists and technologists, between journalists and the platforms that distribute their work. You can't help but admire Facebook. It is an incredible business. It, is, they create, it creates great products and it employs some wonderful people. But it is, with a few others, eating our lunch. Whether they are willingly do so, and perhaps that's a talk, another talk, the reality is that when 85% of every new digital dollar goes to either Facebook or Google, publishers, uh, publishers and journalists are losing control of what happens to their own content. Now, I am not anti-Facebook and certainly not anti-Google. They do wonderful things. I can't afford to be that way anyway. But we have to find new ways of, to work with and on these platforms and providers. They certainly want to do that with us. But the truth is we, the journalists and the entities that employ us, are in a different world than we were even a few years ago. Back then, and it only seems five seconds ago, back then we thought the homepage of our websites were the best portal to our content. Back then, we still held on to the notion that we knew what was best for our audiences and that despite all the talk that we were losing their trust and attention, they really needed us. But the painful truth is large swathes of them are lost. They may be lost to us forever. They certainly show little sign of coming back. So unless we start doing something different, they may well be gone for good. As Jackie said, I spent five months 
uh, at City University in New York. There, the resident agent provocateur is a guy called Jeff Jarvis. He argues that journalism needs to re redefine its mission, that seeing ourselves as simply creators of awesome content is a trap, that not knowing or understanding the business we are in and how it makes money is foolish. He wants us to re reconsider ourselves as a service provider. This is the gist of what Jarvis says. Consider journalism as a service. Content is that which fills, uh, content is something that fills something. Service is something which accomplishes something. To be a service, news must be concerned with outcomes rather than products. What should journalism results be. That seems obvious to me and obvious to him. It should be a better informed individuals, a better informed society. This all sounds lovely and wonderful and common sense. A better informed public. What's not to like? And most journalists will consider what they do is as a service to readers. But it's the journalists who have defined the terms of that service rather than the public. And that's the bit that has changed forever. This is what Jarvis says again. The idea of outcomes-oriented journalism requires that we respect the public and what it knows and needs to know. It forces us to stop thinking that we know better than the public. It leads us to stop thinking that we know better than all publics. It leads us to create systems to gather the public's knowledge. Those systems and those tools are emerging. Facebook and Google are using more of them than we are. You're going to hear a lot more about that during the course of storyology. Tools to better understand and service, can't, service our readers can't come soon enough if we want to continue to think of ourselves as purveyors of truths to the masses. In case you missed it, here's the latest truth index from uh, the Global Communication, Trust Index from the Global Communication Edelman, and if I had a, don't seem to have a clicker here. Is there a clicker? So you'll notice that there is a double-digit trust gap in four, key, in four key institutions, including the media, between the top tier, if you like, the elite, the higher educated, the people who earn more, and what the Edelman causes, the masses. Frankly, if you look at that graph from much longer than five minutes, you realize that the masses don't seem to give a hoot as to what the, uh, the rest of us are doing, or certainly what the media is doing. Now, I'm not so reductive as to suggest that those in the masses are all the more likely to be fooled or believe in lies and half-truths, but there's no doubt that they are paying less attention to us than they were a decade ago. They are more willing to believe in the simple nostrums of a Trump, of a Hansen, and those peddling the untruths about the benefits of Britain leaving the European Union. The Guardian's Kath Viner recently pointed out the media, or parts of it, are often willing accomplices to these distortions because they are addicted to the traffic. We are, in fact, in danger of creating the environment where clicks are far more important than facts. And therein lies the seeds of our own destruction. A few years ago, when I was running the fact-checking startup PolitiFact, I, I would always be assured of a laugh at a conference or a talk when I referred to the concept of truthiness. That's the idea popularized by uh, Stephen Colbert, the US comedian, that something could possess truthy qualities if it kind of felt to be true, 
or if you wanted it to be so. And Viner, in her piece in The Guardian recently, illustrates this perfectly with a reference to the Daily Mail story about the alleged uh, incident of David Cameron simulating sex with a head of a pig. That journalist who wrote that story never had it confirmed. She just published the story and the allegations against the Prime Minister and left the readers to make up their own mind. Now, three years on, the idea of truthiness is certainly no joke. It's become part of our landscape. And as Viner says, when a fact begins to resemble whatever you feel is true, it becomes very difficult for anyone to tell the difference between facts that are true and facts that are not. We are in new territory here. If the Facebook algorithm is tweaked to deliver audiences more and more of the news they like and believe to be true, as it has been, what's to stop everyone having their own brand of truthiness? So what are we to do? What are the journalists to do? Can I first say what we shouldn't do? And that is panic. There is, I've discovered, a deep body of academic research about the role of media in creating moral panics in the rest of society. Sobering reading, try it out sometime. Nowadays, we spend a lot of time panicking ourselves. The other day, I found myself in the presence of a French media sociologist, a lady called Professor Davina Fraumegs, who's from the Sorbonne. She was talking about uh, media panics. A key characteristic of media panics, she said, is the creation of the sense that enemies are everywhere. And you can see that happening at the moment with reportage on Islamic terrorism, of course. As a result of this panic, people stop trusting the state to look after them and the media to inform them. Hence, conspiracies are everywhere and they roll out of bed in the morning and they're halfway around the world before you can catch up to them. Just ask Donald Trump. He puts most of them out. We, but we certainly live in an age of media panics. We have for some time. And I should know, as an editor, I've been party to some of them. But as I was listening to the professor the other day, it dawned on me that one of the most pernicious panics doing the round these days is the one perpetrated on the media by the media. The recent New York Magazine, magazine piece called The Case Against the Media by the Media, again, check it out if you haven't, contains many frank comments and insights, but it shows, just shows how good we've become at disliking ourselves and each other. Healthy and necessary self-examination risks becoming self-loathing or self-pity, and neither emotion is gonna get us very far. We do have to stay calm, and we do have to carry on. But how? As Jackie said, oh, hello, wrong button, there you go. Uh, first, we have to relearn or learn how to listen. News is a conversation, and the success of any conversation is two-way. It requires one person to talk and the other to listen. Fortunately, we have new and smart ways of doing so. Robots. Robots blessed with artificial intelligence will render some human tasks carried out by journalists obsolete. You've probably read already the last uh, few days uh, 
about how the Washington Post is using bots to file short reports and collect data from the Rio Olympics. There are other examples. And this is just the beginning. But bots, and bots and other things, also promise to free reporters from a lot of drudgery. We could be freer to do deeper pieces and better analysis and have more time and more data. I recently mucked around with a machine learning tool for fact-checking political statements. It's called Claimbuster. Have a look, it's free, you can have it, use it yourselves. Claimbuster, it was developed by the Univers University of Texas. And its usefulness may rest in its ability to dredge up statements for fact-checking from the vast array of content in somewhere like, say, Hansard. What Claimbuster does is uses, uses natural language processing to essentially look at the probability of there's a fact in this statement. So it doesn't actually say there's a fact or not. It just gives you a rating on what the possibility, uh, analyzing the language, that there is a fact in that statement. Now, the point about Claimbuster uh, is it doesn't go to sleep. Journalists too tend to go to sleep. It could be used to search out check-worthy claims from Hansard or from other public forum at any times, night and day. In this way, I think smart machines could emerge as a value slash bias-free mirror on the world we journalists set about creating. They, they may, in other words, help us restore trust. There is um, a quite a lot of talk around these days about peak content. That the, this is the idea that we are pushing out more stories than there are advertising dollars to support them. And there's certainly some truth in that. But we haven't reached peak journalism. Uh, City University of New York recently put out a, a report on what it called the new superpowers of journalism, based on interviews with about uh, 39 key employers, both old and new media. They were, they were, as you, uh, they were. I'm sorry, they were, the ability to code, audience development, and using data and visual storytelling techniques. But there are two really heartening aspects to that report that didn't get a lot of coverage because they're old school. And they were that a lot of the foundational skills that journalists have, foundational skills that journalists have, are also needed. So we need superpowers, yes. Although I don't think we all have to go out and learn how to code, but it wouldn't be a bad thing. But um, we do also need to know why we're here and why we exist. So armed with the new powers and old skill, skills, there is every chance that we might get back some of the trust we've lost. Not all of it, and certainly not from everyone. And let's not kid ourselves as if we ever had it from any, everyone. But there are some encouraging efforts along these lines. In the US, I was fortunate to be involved in the Trust Project. It's financially backed by the founder of Craigslist, Craig Newmark, and Google. And the project's first task has been to use audience-centered design, something along what Jackie talked about, to simply ask people what they want from the news media and how they get it. And, and if they don't trust it, what could help them to do so? Most of what they said is summarized in these few words. Accuracy, fairness, openness, transparency, and independence. And much of it sounds like common sense to us, 
but it isn't to many of the people in our audiences. To them, we are often opaque, obscure, possibly corrupt. Audience spoken to by the Trust Project want to see fact-checking. They want to know about the author and why they did that story. They want references and citations. They want to be, in other words, on the inside, not on the out. And the real good news is that it is far easier to do these things now than ever before. The bad news is that we often have to prove the, the business case to our employers to do so, or start doing it ourselves. And I'm more than ever convinced that we have been largely negligent in not learning the business of our business, and that we can't afford to let that happen again. And that is why, in the new Masters of uh, Journalism at UTS, it will include a course in entrepreneurial journalism, and it will include stuff about data, and it will include stuff about audience development, and it will include stuff about computational journalism. And that is also why another UTS project is to look at launching a, a center for media transition that will in part look at new business models, look at the things that work, look at the things that don't, and look at the policy conditions and settings around that that we need. I urged us against panic but I do not think we should fall silent, not for a minute. Another way we can ensure our collective futures is to stand up for the fundamentals of what makes journalism special and different, vital and important, and against the various means that individuals in other bodies are using to curb those very things. I am all for the audience. I am all for listening to audience, working with the audience and serving its needs. I am all for increasing media literacy across the population. I want an informed and civil society, but in doing so, I do not seek to diminish the role of the journalist. We may well be, need to become even more bolshy about what we do and be more willing to speak up and in unison to protect the rights and privileges we enjoy. And we may know, no, we, we will need to find new ways and new avenues to call out the bullshit and the lies put out in the public space by the people and groups who have a vested interest in exploiting this post-fact world. With the, with the rights we enjoy come responsibilities. Despite the mess we are in, or even because of the mess we are in, we need to constantly exercise both. I thank you very much for listening. To hear more from the Walkley Foundation year-round, subscribe to the Walkley Talks podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher, or go to walkleys.com where you can find a playlist of all the best stuff from Storyology. If you like this, rate us on iTunes or chuck us a few dollars at walkleys.com slash donate to help us keep doing it. Subscribe to the Walkley newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe. This podcast is produced by me, Kate Golden, the Walkley Foundation with help from the two SER studios in Sydney, Australia. Catch you next time.